Welcome to the very first Rebellious History podcast. My name is Liz Busquets, and this is Rebellious History because I like to do things a little differently. I've had a rebellious streak in just about everything I've done in my life, from being a metalhead, to my love of motorcycles and classic cars, to my approach to teaching. I guess my children have inherited some of that rebellious streak. For example, the cover art for this podcast was created by my daughter, Valerie Turner, who is a very talented tattoo artist in Indiana. I've always been interested in science and history, and my studies reflect those interests. I have degrees in biology and history, including masters in public health and history, and I'm currently in the process of finishing my dissertation, which is about mental health care during the late 19th and early 20th centuries. My podcast will try to bring history to everyone in a way that is easily understood. One of the main reasons why I've decided to do this is because even though I use social media like everybody else, I absolutely hate it when I read memes with inaccurate historical information. And it is even more frustrating to read the comments below these memes from people agreeing with the incorrect information. So many of my podcasts will be inspired by some of those memes. Memes are not going to be my only inspiration. In discussions over social media, many people have also expressed their frustration with history classes in general and have often asked me why weren't we taught that in school? Well, the answer is first, there just isn't enough time in introductory classes to cover everything. Historians like myself can't cover everything in our studies either. Most teachers and college professors do what they can to give students a good foundation and a good education. Two, it is also true that history has been used to instill in their citizens a sense of patriotism and civic duty. In this pursuit, many times there have been convenient omissions. Some of the omissions that people have often brought up to me are the controversial histories revolving the treatment of the First Nations by colonists and the U.S. government, the history of American intervention in Latin America, and the ugly history of slavery. My podcast will aim to address some of these histories. Most of the time, however, I will steer away from topics that other podcasts have often addressed and histories that people are better acquainted with. For example, it is impossible to discuss history and not talk about wars. But military history is not what I'll be concentrating on. Throughout this process, if anyone would like a topic discussed, has any ideas, or sees memes that may contain historical misinformation, please feel free to email me at rebellioushistory at gmail.com. Rebellious History is also on Facebook, and you can visit the website at rebellioushistory.com. Before we get started, let's have a disclaimer. Sometimes I'm going to give you personal opinions, and those opinions that I offer do not reflect the opinions of any institutions with which I have been or I am currently affiliated. I had originally planned to start by discussing the role of religion in history so that we could get to religion and the founding fathers and religion in more modern American history. 
However, with all the talk about coronavirus, I decided to discuss pandemics and disease in history for the first episode. Following my discussion of past pandemics and epidemics, I will add a commentary on coronavirus. I am not an epidemiologist, but I have some understanding of the virus. I certainly feel that I'm somewhat more qualified than some of the people out there who are putting out myths and misinformation. This is what Revelers History is all about. I don't think that most people realize that many of the very deadly pandemics have actually changed the course of history. The deaths of hundreds of thousands and even millions of people have disrupted societies, destabilized governments and social hierarchies, and have forced people to start anew in many instances and forced them to develop new technology. So I'm going to go through some of the deadliest diseases of historical importance, but this is a very general view of disease. It will probably take me a whole semester to go through some of this in detail. One of the first deadly pandemics on record occurred in the years 165 to 180 AD. This was the Antonine Plague. Roman soldiers brought a disease back from the Near East while they were there on a military campaign. The epidemic may have claimed the life of one of the Roman emperors, Lucius Verus. It spread through Italy, Asia Minor, Greece, Egypt, and it killed over 5 million people. The estimate that the mortality rate was about 25%, which is huge. Of course, we must realize that medicine at the time could not handle such a pandemic. But the description of the symptoms in some of the writings from the time it is difficult to ascertain exactly what disease was responsible, but two of the main suspects are measles and smallpox. This disease really decimated the Roman army and it weakened the empire. The empire had to delay many of the campaigns that it had planned. Number two on my list happened in the year 541 AD, and this was the Justinian plague. This was a plague caused by the bubonic plague and it was about 800 years or so before the Black Death, which was also a devastating outbreak of bubonic plague. The disease is caused by strain of Yersinia pestis, and it can be spread through the bites of fleas. The bacteria produce endotoxins and travel throughout the lymphatic system, causing painful node and in the throat, groin, and armpits. It is estimated that it killed up to 25 million people throughout the Byzantine Empire and the Mediterranean in the span of only one year. It decimated the city of Constantinople, killing about 40% of its population. Lots of young people died, causing a terrible shortage of manpower. The huge losses among the farming class caused a depletion of food and consequently caused famines. The government also lost income from taxes. Justinian was actually forced to use barbarians for the military because his army had been depleted by the plague. And now the big one. The Black Death decimated Europe and parts of Africa and Asia in the years 1346 to 1353. As I already mentioned, this was caused by the bubonic plague. It is estimated that it killed as many as 75 million people. 
or between 25 or 30 percent of the entire population of Europe. If you consider that the population at the time was much smaller than it is today, this was a tremendous death toll. The Black Death resulted in many social, economic, political, and religious upheavals. Some historians estimate that it took over 80 years for the population to recover in some places and up to 150 years in others. Again, the workforce was considerably reduced, which ended up being good for some of the survivors because they could find work where before they could not. Some peasants actually were able to prosper if they survived the plague because eventually some opportunities opened up which had been closed to them before. Some of the negative consequences included the persecution of Jewish people. Jews were persecuted because their populations fared a little better due to their hygienic practices, and so people became suspicious of them and accused them of actually causing the plague by poisoning water. Over 2,000 Jews were exterminated in Strasbourg and many others in Mainz and Cologne. A lot of other people were also scapegoated, such as foreigners, pilgrims, the homeless, beggars, and even the Roma. In Egypt, for example, women were persecuted because some religious advisors told the Sultan that this was God's punishment for fornication. Even though there was widespread famine, the plague had the effect of lowering economic inequality. Disease doesn't discriminate, right? So suddenly, land became available at cheaper prices. Also, in towns and cities, wages went up because labor was in high demand. People were also forced to come up with technical innovations to deal with the shortage of labor. So we're talking here about a very big cultural, social, and political change. The Black Death is probably the one pandemic that came very close to what some would consider an apocalypse, although the Spanish flu in 1918 also was very bad. But in fact, the art of the time of the Black Death reflects morbidity. Uh, many people thought it was the end of the world. Another example of how disease can influence historical events happened during the European conquest of the New World. Europeans brought to the Americas all their deadly diseases, most notably smallpox, measles, and influenza. There are many estimates out there about how many indigenous people populated the Americas before the Europeans came, and we can never know for sure. However, the conclusion has been that the death among the native peoples in the New World as a result of European diseases were in the million. The indigenous peoples did not have any immunity to these diseases brought by the Spanish, the British, the Portuguese, the French, the Dutch. In the accounts from some of the early explorers, they described large populations and villages. And later on, a few years later, other explorers going through some of the same territories couldn't find many of these people and in fact found abandoned villages instead. So disease was one of the major factors that allowed Europeans to colonize the New World. As a matter of fact, Puritans in the New World in New England sometimes stated how God had afflicted native groups with these diseases so that Puritans could take over the land 
and would prosper. So we'll get to the Puritans in future podcasts. Another disease that has caused several pandemics has been cholera. Cholera can still be a major problem in some places, and it spreads through contaminated water and food. The deadliest of the cholera pandemics occurred between 1852 and 1860, and it is known as the third cholera pandemic. It is estimated that about one million people died worldwide. It started in India and it spread through Europe, Asia, Africa, and the Americas. But it was during this pandemic that a doctor by the name of John Snow in Britain discovered that contaminated water was the culprit. This led to public health initiatives and the construction of infrastructure and sanitation facilities. That is why cholera is now rare in the United States. The last cholera epidemic to cause problems here happened in the early 20th century during the sixth cholera pandemic, which killed over 800,000 people worldwide. But cholera has caused problems, for example, like in Haiti after the earthquake, and I believe that it's still a problem there. There are some important tropical diseases, and these include yellow fever, malaria, and dengue, which are mosquito-borne diseases. Yellow fever and malaria had encouraged the use of slaves in the cultivation of rice in the South because of the idea that Africans had immunity to these diseases. It was economically important for the U.S. because several of these epidemics killed thousands, particularly when they traveled from New Orleans and up the Mississippi River. Yellow fever was also used as a justification by the U.S. to retain control over Cuba in 1898, an example of the inability, allegedly, of Cubans to govern themselves. I will talk about that in my next episode, which is all about Cuba. In the case of yellow fever, it was a Cuban doctor by the name of Carlos Finlay who discovered the cause. These diseases were also important for the U.S. because of the effect on American soldiers in Panama during the construction of the Panama Canal and afterwards. There was also an influenza pandemic in the late 19th century caused by the strain H2N2. It started in three different locations at the same time in May of 1889. That was in Turkestan, in the Athabasca region in northwestern Canada, and in Greenland. It quickly spread around the globe, and it's estimated that over one million people died. Since physicians and scientists had already discovered bacteria by this time, much was learned from this pandemic, even though influenza, of course, is a viral disease, not bacteria. The late 19th century is when public health initiatives really take off in Europe and the Americas. And of course, there is the flu pandemic of 1918, or better known as the Spanish flu. It is estimated that it infected around 800 million people and killed up to 50 million people all over the world. That means that the infection rate was around 27%, a mortality rate around 10%. It is one of the deadliest pandemics ever. Even though it's called the Spanish flu, nobody really knows how it got started. During this time, to maintain morale, the governments in Germany, Britain, France, and the U.S. minimized the seriousness of the situation. After all, if you remember, 1918, World War I was still going on, and soldiers in Europe 
at the end of World War I were also affected. It killed healthy young adults at much higher rates than expected. Most pandemics, most respiratory illnesses, you'll have a higher mortality rate in people who are immunocompromised, um, older people, and children. The Spanish flu, however, killed a much higher number of young adults than we usually see in flu pandemics of this kind. Also, historians have said that the pandemic was worsened by the overcrowding of hospitals and medical camps, malnutrition, and other factors, and it made the disease even deadlier. Of course, many businesses suffer because of it, but the, this pandemic is still a mystery in many ways. It suddenly disappeared, and we've never seen one quite like it again. In the late 50s, there was another outbreak of influenza type A, better known now as the Asian flu. It originated in China, but spread to Singapore, Hong Kong, and the U.S. It is estimated that over 2 million people perished. Almost 70,000 died in the U.S. A decade later, we had another one, this one caused by the H3N8 strain, and the first case was reported in Hong Kong, but it soon spread throughout the world. It killed over 1 million people, but the mortality rate was actually only about 0.5%. Of course, another big pandemic in the 20th century was HIV. To date, it has killed more than 36 million people worldwide. Now, of course, we have this coronavirus knocking at our door, uh, just a day or two ago, the news announced that the first person had died of coronavirus here in the United States. So I'm going to give you a general rundown of the virus. Its name originates from the fact that the virus's outer layer is reminiscent of a crown. Viruses can be either DNA or RNA viruses. And in the case of coronaviruses, they are positive sense single-stranded RNA viruses. The strain that is causing all this problem in the disease that we now know as COVID-19 is the SARS-CoV-2 virus. It is a respiratory disease, and like other such viruses, it spreads through respiratory droplets. It has already caused some political and economic instability in China, there have been a lot of complaints about how slow China was in responding to the emergency. It has also unfortunately caused xenophobia and racist attitudes towards people of Chinese and Asian descent, which of course is kind of ridiculous since ethnicity has nothing to do with the virus. The World Health Organization has been working very hard to counter the plethora of misinformation about the virus that is out there in the internet, in social media. This includes several ridiculous conspiracy theories. So all over the media and in social media, I've seen all kinds of numbers being thrown around. Some are extremely low, some are extremely high. People really don't understand what these numbers mean. So I'm gonna give you a rundown on some of these statistics. One of the numbers out there is the R0, which measures the reproduction rate of the virus. In other words, how many people is one infected person likely to infect? So the lower I have seen is 2.6, which means that an infected person is likely to infect 
two other people, maybe three. Some of the other numbers, of course, are the infection rate. So let's say, as an example, that the disease would spread at an infection rate of 1%. In a city like New York, then, if we just go by the numbers, New York has more than 8 million people. Theoretically, I guess you could have 80,000 people infected. The effect is that it will put quite a load on the hospitals and it will considerably affect businesses. So let's say now that the mortality rate is 0.5%. Now, I've read mortality rates of 1%, 0.5%, 2%, 3%. So let's say that is 0.5%. That means that out of those thousands of people in New York City that will probably get infected, only about 400 will die. If it is 2%, then maybe we will have a higher number, up to, say, 1,600. Now, this, of course, is all theoretical. It's just explaining how those numbers work. Let's be honest for a moment. I know that this is being used politically in the media, but the truth is that doctors and scientists have been saying for years that this country is not prepared for a true pandemic. Politicians of all persuasions tend to put money in things like war rather than putting the money on emergency response plans for an event that may or may not occur. So this is not a problem of only this administration, although probably the decision to take away money and resources from the CDC was probably not the smartest thing to do. And putting somebody who is unqualified and has no understanding of the science in charge, probably not the best option. But the problem of lack of preparedness is one that is endemic here. Even though the CDC had more resources before, it still did not have enough. Like, for example, I just read the news that the Surgeon General came out and said, you need to stop buying the N95 respirators or masks. And we need those for the healthcare workers who are actually going to be in contact with people who are ill. Why don't we have enough of that equipment stored somewhere just in case? It's not like N95 masks are going to go bad after 10 years. So why are we not prepared already? There's also some tendency to want to control the information. The problem with trying to control the information is that people see that as a possible conspiracy theory. What are you not telling us? You're not telling us the truth. So they tend to panic anyway. Why not just tell it like it is? For all of you out there listening, don't panic. We're not there yet. Yes, we're going to have cases. We already have cases. The best thing to do is to take precautions. And that means hygiene, wash your hands often, avoid being in large crowds, avoid being in confined spaces with people. The mask may give you some protection, but it will never be 100% protection. People need to take some personal initiative in maintaining the proper hygiene. And if people take these precautions, it can slow the spread of the disease whether it's coronavirus or influenza, and it will slow the spread of the disease whether the government is ready or not. So our next episode will deal with something that has also been on the news and it has been addressed in many memes out there. As you probably know, Senator Sanders has been criticized for past statements regarding Cuba and his positive view of Sarma Castro's programs. 
So in our next episode, we will explore the history of Cuba. How did the U.S. get involved in Cuba? What events led to the rise of Castro? What happened after the revolution? And what programs he did put in place or not? I will be releasing this episode probably in a day or two after this one is out. So tune in, let's dispel some myths, and let's bust some memes. Thank you.